This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Helen is off today. We're doing the film Blonde, and I'll kick us off. Blonde came out earlier this year in September. It stars Anna de Armas as Norma Jean Mortensen, known to most by her stage name and eventually real name, Marilyn Monroe. The film is based on a novel by Joyce Carol Oates. Oates explicitly denies that the novel is a biography. She frames it as a work of fiction only loosely inspired by real events. The novel was nominated for a Pulitzer in 2001. Oates is very happy with this film. She says that the director, Andrew Dominic, has a vision that is, quote, parallel with my own or identical to my own. She calls the film startling, brilliant, very disturbing, and perhaps most surprisingly, an utterly feminist interpretation. Oates went so far as to say that she's not sure any male director has ever achieved anything like this. The film dreamily intersplices iconic scenes from Marilyn Monroe's filmography with miserable moments, some real, some fictional, some somewhere in between, in Norma Jean's personal life. It is not a pleasant film, but in fairness, it's not intended to be pleasant. Neither was the novel. Oates's work often features a brand of feminist thinking that reminds me of Catherine McKinnon's. In the novel, Oates has Marilyn think, quote, All dead birds are female. There is something female about being dead. This Marilyn is very obviously a victim in a relentless and visceral way. Men desire her, but they do not love her. They hire her, but they try not to pay her. When she cooperates, they feign deference. But when she tries to resist their plans for her, they abuse her. Eventually, they get her addicted to hard drugs, and the drugs destroy her. It's suggested that Norma Jean is especially vulnerable to all of this because her own father was absent. Her mother was mentally disturbed. She has never known love, and in her quest to obtain something she doesn't understand, she is easily exploited. Oates is a supporter of the Me Too movement, and in an interview, she frames her work as consistent with it. In an interview with The New Yorker, Oates says, quote, Because of the Me Too movement, there's much more latitude in listening to or paying respect to women who have been victimized. Before Harvey Weinstein, there wouldn't have been as much sympathy. People would say, oh, you're exaggerating. It wasn't that bad. Or you're just saying that. Or he didn't really rape you. You're making it up. But now, since Me Too, people are more respectful of how women are exploited. One might think, then, that this is the sort of film that would get favorable reviews from critics, but the reaction has been complicated. In recent years, it has been increasingly popular in Hollywood to frame women as agents rather than victims. This Marilyn is nothing like the girl bosses that now reign supreme in Disney films. In liberal feminism, women achieve freedom by participating in the market. By selling what they have to sell, they become financially independent, freeing them from reliance on men. But the more commercially successful this Norma Jean is, the more she becomes Marilyn, a brand, something to be bought, not someone to be loved. Her commercial success dehumanizes her. The more she becomes the object of desire, the harder it is for anyone to genuinely know her, let alone love her. Indeed, it even becomes hard for Marilyn to know who she is or what she wants. In recent years, liberal feminists have argued that sex work is work. They say this to normalize not just prostitution, but the many related kinds of labor that sell the idea of sex, the idea of beauty. 
They do this to suggest that there's nothing wrong with selling these things. All workers provide something someone desires. Why treat sex as a special category? I am not entirely opposed to the idea that sex isn't altogether different from the other desires workers satisfy. But does that mean there's nothing wrong with treating human beings as commodities or as means to other people's desires? Increasingly, more and more workers are made to think of themselves as having brands. If you're really successful in your field and you achieve some level of fame or notoriety, it becomes hard to be anything other than the brand. The personal brand becomes a gilded cage. It may have been created to fund a private life, but it gradually consumes and hollows out that private life. It replaces that which it was created to support. In doing so, the brand kills its creator. We are all told that work will set us free when through our work we create the brands that consume us. We hide from this by, as Nina put it last week, identifying out. We tell ourselves that there is some real us beyond the work we do that we can get in touch with through processes of self-discovery, self-cultivation, or identity construction. But this self is nothing more than a memory of the person that existed before submission to capital, a person who had a potential that has since been squandered in the performance of meaningless roles. If any of that potential is recoverable, it can only be recovered by breaking free from the brand and from the social roles to which the brand binds us. This Marilyn tries, at many points in the film, to do just that. But each time she tries to run, she is forced back into the role. The Marilyn Monroe brand does not set her free. It is a trap, and eventually it kills her. As more of the professions become celebritized and more professionals are buried beneath their brands, more workers, both male and female, find themselves in something like her shoes. Let's hear what Nina thinks. <clears throat> yeah, great. Um, yeah, so I, I think this film is uh, is fantastic, and I, I think the the way that I understood it, and some other people in my orbit, like uh, we commissioned a piece for Compact by Emily Russo, um, and Adam Lehrer and others have talked about it really well. Is is this is this a horror film? <laughs> I think I think this film is is best read, and and I, it's not really surprising. Like as you say, Benjamin, like these the liberal responses or the mainstream media responses to this film uh, were were very negative. Like they really wanted to pan this film. Uh, they wanted to say that this <clears throat> exactly is a film um, that exploits Monroe. It's not even true, for example. But of course, it's not intended to to be, you know, a biopic. It's not, you know, it's not really her, guys. You know, um, I mean, it isn't. It isn't. But you know what I mean. Like, suddenly, they become, uh, you know, utter literalists. It's like as if as if it was pretending to be a documentary with actual footage of actual Monroe. You know, as opposed to a kind of, you know horror film type fantasy or nightmare and 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 also this yeah like you say it it doesn't affirm the girl boss narrative um uh, in any way whatsoever so the way that liberal feminism or the mainstream you know incarnation of of this sort of whatever media feminism whether it's coming from men or women by the way you know most of these commentators are indistinguishable you know would say something like this film is unfair to Monroe because it doesn't or Norma Jean because it doesn't it doesn't depict 
these other aspects of her, like her intellectual, her intellectual desires, her, um, you know, her character, her other interests and so on. Right. Because from their point of view, she's being depicted as a passive victim of, of forces, of men, you know, and, and therefore because of this literalist interpretation, any depiction of exploitation is itself therefore exploitative right that's that's one of the arguments of this kind of new and terrible wave of uh cultural criticism that we see all the time and they just kind of liberally literally applied this uh framework to this film and i, I think it's a it's a, a profound misunderstanding of what this film is about i think this film is about something very very deep in our culture which is to do with our complicity in the gays, and not just the gays in the way Helen is always very critical of the use of, you know, the film theory use of the gays as taken from psychoanalysis. She's quite right to do that. And I don't mean the gays in that sense. I mean something actually much deeper, which is to do with this repeated refrain that's in the film, which is to do with the circle of light. So when Monroe goes to an acting class, she's being taught how to dissociate, essentially. There's a very important scene. Uh, much of the film is taken up, by the way, with this kind of uh, uh, bright light, like the light, the round artificial light, right? It's really important that it's an artificial round light of... Not only the cinema camera, the paparazzi uh, photographers, um, even the kind of the the circle of her of her like vulva as she uh, has repeated uh, encounters with the abortion doctor or when she has a miscarriage, you know, and the the endless kind of uh, how to put it the the sort of struggle of of Monroe not only to to find someone to replace her missing father, which is kind of impossible, but also her, her attempts at maternity, at maternity, right? And she is stuck in this kind of samsaric horror, as you say, of the not only the split subject, the split self, which is why I thought it's a great film for for to think about psychoanalysis, but the blackout, to, to quote Britney Spears' album <laughs> of the same name, and there is a very, very Britney overlap here, particularly with the Britney Spears video for Every Time, which is extremely Monroe influence. Uh, and the final scene of this film has a kind of Britney Spears happy ending, sad ending hint as well. But is 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 it's almost like a gnostic horror film because the gnosticism is the fake sun which is the artificial white light which instead of like a natural relationship to beauty or even you know if monroe had had a relationship to the world that was less conditioned by this tragedy that actually which is her beauty you know and as you say men don't love her they desire her or they and it's a very humanist film. This is another way I think the liberal readings get it wrong because what actually is 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 tragic and moving is the humanity of Monroe. It's it's her, you know, the fact that she is a split subject in the most profound and painful way, which which tells you something about, as I say, the complicity of the the Western viewer in our commitment to the image as such, right, and to the cinematic reproduction of beauty as this unattainable, impossible 
thing, which destroys anyone who possesses it or is presented as possessing it, right? But instead of us seeing this as a cautionary tale, we see it as something desirable. You know, people wanted to be Monroe. The problem is Monroe, of course, doesn't exist. She doesn't exist for Norma Jean. She's not. And I think it was very... uh very moving to start the film with the child, you know, to start not with the beautiful sex bomb person, but with the 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 pre-sexual child, you know, and and to 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 show you in a sense in these flashes, these nightmarish, beautiful, brilliant flashes, you know, the 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 memorable scene of her mother, who's very you know mentally unwell, driving up through a fire. You know, into into the to the hills of Hollywood to try to go to a party where where Monroe's allegedly real father is there, and and the father is is never never there. You know, and we we know from M- M- Monroe's real life that he didn't really want much to do with her, even after her, her fame. I think they met once or something like this. You know, but it, it's not even the the real father; it's the idea of the father, right? Like what she cannot. You know, and I think we can understand this like onto theologically, like there is an absence of God. There is an absence of the son. There is only the desire for the missing father, the blackout as at the center of the split subject. And no one is more split than, than Norma Jean and Marilyn Monroe in terms of literally, you know, the creation of a separate personality, you know, in order to cope with what it is to, to, to bear the burden of other people's desire. And then the artificial sun in the form of the white light and the circle of light, which she cannot get beyond. And of course, we know that her life is, is, is tragic in multiple ways in terms of her relationships, in terms of her drug use, in terms of, you know, this, this kind of perpetual inability to kind of coincide with herself or accept, um, the things that she was missing, let's say. And I, and I think, it, this film really works uh, precisely because it puts us back in the position of the viewer. It's almost like saying you cannot have this Western culture of cinema without accepting responsibility for your complicity in the death and destruction of those who are called or those who are chosen to represent beauty back to us. You know, in, in that sense, uh, another a different culture would would not celebrate these images <laughs> in the same way. Like we wouldn't have had the same cinematic culture. Um, and I think this is therefore like a really clever film about cinema itself and about the the artificial light which is behind photography and cinema and all of these images which we are surrounded by, influenced by, affected by. You know, we now spend half our time on a computer or backlit with artificial light, uh, often while ignoring the the, the natural light from outside. So I, I thought this was a brilliant film about Gnosticism and about the image and about beauty. And I and I actually thought it was incredibly respectful to the to the memory of of Marilyn Monroe and 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 for all women actually. And I agree I agree with uh, Oates uh in this sense. Although not in the, the sense that she as you stress, Benjamin wanted to stress the victimhood aspect. I think actually what it does celebrate instead, or celebrate is the wrong word what it uh i don't know commemorates <laughs> maybe what it depicts in 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 many ways is is the humanity of of monroe as a, as a as a as a person as a human being you know and actually 
the ambi- you know one of the other major just to finish one of the other major criticisms of this film was that it was pro-life you know that it was uh uh you know therefore right-wing and reactionary because it didn't depict Monroe as being simply happy with you know abortions and in fact she's extremely ambivalent right so so in the film she has an abortion at least one and uh, a miscarriage and and you know it's it's clear she did have a miscarriage she never had she never managed to carry a child to term uh by all accounts she wanted to be a mother and i th- but i think it's it's far braver for art if you like to be truer to life which is to say to depict the ambivalences and ambiguities of our moral decisions in all of their complexity without telling you exactly what to think about them and without sort of you know uh, pushing a, a dominant ideological line you know the current regime celebrates abortion in a way that is actually on occasion disgusting um and kind of offensive to the i think the uh, ambivalence and often i would say upset that women feel about having had an abortion it's not it, it is in no way uh, a kind of um a celebratory uh moment and i think that used to be understood even on the left right you know used to be that the idea would be like safe legal and rare you know with the emphasis on rare it wasn't oh abortion is great and you go girl and you know this kind of horror you know and i I think this is a we've moved towards a, a a point at which the the question of life and value you know has been almost eliminated on the left you know under the stupid premise that oh because the right talk about these things we can't talk about them and we have to oppose them because any discussion of life and value uh would necessarily be reactionary and this is like you know unbelievable own goal uh, and very, very stupid and just not sort of true to people's, uh, you know, life and how they feel. So, yeah, I, I really recommend this film. Uh, I It is upsetting. You know, it is. It that's what I mean about it being a horror film. It doesn't shy away from graphic scenes um, of, of, of sex and uh, abortion, miscarriage and, you know, violence and uh, and. The, it's filmed in black and white largely with some colour scenes and it's interesting to to ask why those scenes are shot in those different in different ways um but yeah i think it's it's an excellent film about about sort of vision itself and about light yeah so one of the things that came up for me looking at a lot of the criticism of this film is and i see this in a lot of academic circles too this kind of fixation on agency if you're not depicting people mm. as agentic then you're dehumanizing them it, it kind of you know, either they're agents and you're celebrating their agency or you are <coughs> in some way mistreating them and this uh, you know balabar talks about the you know the citizen subject the um mm-hmm. you know, etienne balabar the aspect in which we are a citizen the aspect in which we are a subject and how these things are mutually enmeshed and you can't just get rid of one of them or the other. And it seems that in reaction to a lot of Marxist political theory, there was a kind of return to the citizen and the agent and what can the modern person do as an individual. Uh, And that intervention, I think, has run its course at this point. And 
now we are in a moment where we only think about or, or are only allowed to discuss really the agentic citizen component and we are constantly trying to deny and look past the subject aspect and that's happened as over the last 50 years i think we have become more subject and less citizen uh, than mm -hmm. we would have been in the post-war era when a lot of these criticisms of oh we were thinking too much in terms of subject uh, were being made there were a lot of civil society organizations that could allow people to be constructed in a variety of different ways and organize them to participate in social and political life in the post-war era. And a lot of that stuff is gone and uh, left people at the mercy of a larger kind of mass popular culture. Mm. No, it's a, it's a really, really good point. I mean, my my PhD, which, you know, I finished in 2006, so it's like a million years old. But, you know, I was looking at concepts, especially mid-19th century and 20th century concepts of the collective political subject, right? So precisely looking at the history of these terms like subjectivation, philosophy's own um, ambivalence towards the individual subject or the thinking subject, and then the group. And I was looking at late Sartre's uh, critique of dialectical reason, where he, he tries to have a sort of... Uh, let's say, a philosophical, anthropological uh, defense of uh, group subjects, basically. And he tries to talk about how they come about politically and so on and so forth. There's a very, very interesting, ultimately failed attempt, but like really quite a beautiful attempt, actually, to try and think through the dialectics between humankind, class, uh, you know, the revolutionary subject. Is it? Is it... Uh, a collective group, obviously, like when we talk about the storming of the Bastille, you have uh, like a small group of people, like, you know, and like many revolts or revolutions are this, you know, the collective, the agent, if you like, is a collective political subject who are united by a shared goal, like whether it's to storm the Bastille or, you know, Sartre famously uses the line of the... Uh, <clears throat> the queue, people queuing for a bus, the bus doesn't arrive, the group gets annoyed, the group collectively moves to the bus station to complain. And he talks about this idea of a group infusion, as opposed to like the seriality of everyday life, which is his term for kind of atomization and individualism, individuality, as it were. So, yeah, I think, you know, we, I think in the, the Western Marxist tradition, there are still some unfinished tensions in this thinking. And I, I have, I read a lot of Balibar's work uh, and wrote about it, reviewed it. Uh, he was my external examiner, my PhD. And I think, you know, because for various reasons, I mean, what, you, you, you'll have more to say about this, but obviously in the Marxist theory, you know, it's like the, the motor of history is class antagonism. You know, it's, it's, it's the antagonism between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and the, in the, at least in the kind of, uh, capitalist uh, mode of production. And so if you like, you have these kind of molar groups, but they're, but their power doesn't, you know, in the, in early Marx, the power of the proletariat comes from what they lack, if you see what I mean. Like they, you know, you, the, the, the chains point and, and so on. And, and of course he's in trying to invert Hegel. But at the same time, when you look at kind of 19th century humanism or some of the post-war French, uh, philosophers, as I was doing, and I was trying to sort of map them onto each other, um, you, you know, the pre-Marxists, 
humanists are all, of course, making generalizations about humankind, mankind. You know, this is a universal subject, like a post-Christian universal subject, it's like taking from, from St. Paul all the way to uh, modernity, if you like. And when, in Rousseau, when you have the idea of the sovereign uh, subject, you know, he kind of collapses the hierarchy, right? So you, you have this kind of the agency is given over to humanity as a whole, if you like, right? That's the will of the people. And yeah, but but how to reconcile these kind of generalizing universal tendencies with the antagonism, right, that Marx needs in order to get his his um, historical materialism off the ground, right? Because he can't be a humanist. Like this is out to says point in a certain sense, you know, and and then the concept of the, the interpolation of the subject, it's like, well, how do you become a subject? Lukash tries to solve this by saying, well, look, you know, the proletariat is a subject of history. Uh, Postone would say, no, the subject of history is capital, you know, which in a way, obviously, then the critique of Postone and, the, and those others becomes you're, you're depriving the proletariat, you're depriving workers of agency, you know, and I agree. Agency is not a word that people were using until... Quite recently, like even when I was doing my PhD, this was not in circulation in the same way. It feels a bit like a psyop. Um, I think it's I think it's micro foundations, and everybody <laughs> notices in economics this methodological insistence that you act as if the individual is the base unit, and you structure every theory that is considered a legitimate economic theory through that micro foundationalism. Agency mm. is a way of porting that same tendency into other disciplines. And the insistence mm. on agency is the insistency on microfoundationalism by other means. Yeah, um, it, but it doesn't. It sort of doesn't solve the problem of the collective subject, you know. And so I was very obsessed with Feuerbach just to just to finish this like yeah. little lecture I'm giving. Um, but Feuerbach basically says, you know, when we think individually, we think on behalf of mankind. You know, he has this very beautiful uh, kind of immediate universalism. So unlike the kind of, I guess, the Cartesian philosophical subject, the individual, you know, the cogito as an eye. I mean, it's more complicated than that. But often I think in philosophy, we tend to think of the thinking mind as a kind of individual discrete unit. And we fail to recognise sometimes, I think, the... Um, you know, because we're mapping on the rational subject to the moral subject and, and so on, we fail to think about the, if you like, the collective dimensions of thought as such. So Feuerbach has this idea of infinite thought. Like when we think, we think infinitely because we think on behalf of, as part of humanity, both the living and the dead, you know, which is actually very beautiful, you know, rather than as an individual. Like there is no individual thought, let's put it that way. There is no individual, you know. I mean, I, I, I really... Don't think there's an individual. <laughs> uh, there might be, you know, and this is another aspect, actually. It's like there's no there's no good way, really, of thinking the collective, you know. it's Obviously, Jung has a go with the collective unconscious, uh, which is generally frowned upon in academia. <laughs> you can't defend Jung as an academic whatsoever, although he's very influential outside, uh, I'd say, uh, especially with Peterson uh, revival. And... But the, you know, the individual doesn't really exist. This is why Marx has to come up with the idea of the social individual, right, in the German ideology, because the individual has not yet happened either, because the individual, through exploitation, is absolutely unable to explore his or her capacities. You know, I mean, I don't know how that fits with your 
emphasis on social role because Marx Marx has a notion of polyvalence really, which which in the German ideology which is basically crushed by by work you know because we're fed into these narrow pathways which is not the same as the social role position yeah yeah meaningful social roles yeah yeah meaningful from social roles. alienated social roles under capitalism yeah yeah. Uh, yeah i i think i did a we did an episode of political theory 101 we recorded recently on chrysippus it hasn't come out yet Mm. I'm seeing a lot of parallels between this discussion and the argument between the academy and the Stoics, where the Stoics will say that you can acquire virtue independently of social conditions, and that therefore, uh, you know, all of the social conditions are preferred indifference. They're things that you should choose if you have the opportunity to choose them, but they're not goods in themselves. Only virtue is a good in itself on the Stoic account. Uh, and so, by contrast, in Plato and Aristotle, a lot of those preferred indifference are prerequisites for acquiring virtue. The virtue acquisition process is rooted in the city, the way the city is structured. Different kinds of cities are more or less amenable to creating virtuous citizens. You can have cycles of cities in which cities produce worse people who produce worse cities. There's an embeddedness in Plato and Aristotle. And then, of course... Different types of souls, different types of people, natural slaves and uh, natural free people, uh, not humanity as a universal category. Classes mm. naturalized, especially in Aristotle. And so that has some disadvantages from the point of view of a you know, left-wing uh, view. It, obviously, it's disadvantageous insofar as it suggests that the, you know, the worker is a slave and not someone who's capable of reason. But it also has some advantages insofar as it recognizes the very elaborate process of making someone who can actually think and just how intricate and difficult that is and how it doesn't just happen of its own accord. The Stoic view, on the other hand, you know, by suggesting that all people are structured by an eternal reason or a kind of benign mm-hmm. fate, suggests mm-hmm. that all the hum- all humans are the same. And you know, Chris Brook at Cambridge... Uh, argues that Stoicism had this enormous influence on Rousseau and through Rousseau, Mm. uh, Kant and and Hegel and Marx, by suggesting that there is a kind of of human rather than gold souls, silver souls, bronze souls, natural slaves, women, men. That has an advantage insofar as it invites us to consider the ordinary person as potentially capable of reason. But it has a disadvantage insofar as it suggests that that will happen of its own accord. And so then the liberal theories that get going on the basis of this argue that you don't really need to do very much to structure the society so that people will be able to cultivate virtue, that they'll just do that of their own accord if left to their own devices. And we see that in all of the liberal theory that's influenced by Rousseau and Kant, uh, including, I think, to some degree, Hegel and Marx, but Mm -hmm. also... Uh, you know, John Rawls and his notion that, well, all you really need is the primary goods, a very relatively thin account of the prerequisites. You know, there's a concession to the idea of prerequisites, but it's a very thin account compared to the much more elaborate account of, of the scholastics or, or Plato. And I, I think that that argument is still going on and it's not really recognized. And I think a lot of people who 
aren't interested in that ancient stuff and just want to kind of treat Hegel as the jumping off point are porting in certain Stoic assumptions that they're not aware of and that there are some good reasons to critique. That's not to say that we should adopt the scholastic position of there being natural slaves. Mm. But there are, I think, some things that the academy and the scholastics are saying that are relevant for thinking about how do you actually make a society in which the ordinary person is able to exercise reason. It can't just be cutting them loose in a liberal private sphere with civil society orgs. That, I think, at this point has been proven not to work. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. I, I think the work of um, John Sellers as well on Stoicism is actually very useful as well. This is someone who's know at, uh, at Warwick. And he would often say, suggest that uh, many of the thinkers, as you say, uh, were using Stoic ideas, but not un- in an unacknowledged way or not tracing back the history um, adequately. Um, so he would make this point too. And yeah, I, 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 I don't know, just on a personal level, like, or conceptually, yeah, I, I really go back and forth. It's like, you know, I, I mean, I, I sort of, I feel like I'm almost like a constitutional spinozist in some ways, right? Like I, you know, when, when Spinoza has his axiom, man thinks, I mean, like, yes, you know, or like Feuerbach says, you know, like when we think we think as part of humanity and on behalf of humanity and thought is infinite because it includes the thought of everyone who's ever lived and everyone who's ever died. And I'm like, yes, you know, and I think this is so sort of beautiful. And I do, I, I do think that, we are all capable of reason, right? I think I think it's it's it is important before we even get to politics. And I understand what, exactly what you're saying. I think about the liberal presuppositions and actually how that can devolve or has devolved <laughs> in reality into uh, actually something which is destructive and uh, has caused a great deal of unhappiness, which is to say that the liberal individual unmoored and untethered and left to make up his or her own morality under the name of, of something like a kind of abstract freedom, which is not freedom in the social sense, but, but rather, you know, the freedom of ghosts. I think McIntyre has this line, you know, something which is so detached from relationality, from tradition, from place, you know, from, from Aristotelianism, from natural ca- categories that we have, you know, we've, we've swapped or we've lost those things which would have comprised the vast majority of, of historical man and woman's existence, right? For this very narrow notion of, individual freedom or this concept of the the individual that's presupposed by economics and by politicians you know and relates to this agency psyop and uh, how to put it uh but at the same time it's very difficult for me constitutively to not want to say everybody is capable of reason everyone thinks everybody uh has reasons for their positions. Everyone is both morally good and bad. Everyone is capable of, of, of these things, you know, psychoanalytically we're, we're split subject, uh, you know, divided by language and, and so on and so forth that we talk about all the time, especially, you know, Helen's analysis. So I don't know. I don't know how to put it. It's, it's difficult to reconcile that somehow with what is also true, which is the fact that, uh, 
in reality, humanity is is pluralistic at the level of its. I mean, even just very basic objective facts, like we're all different ages. Like there are human beings who are alive today who are ranged from zero to I don't know, a hundred and twelve, one hundred sixty. I don't know, whoever the oldest person in the world, right? So, and we're we're all different from one another in 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 serious ways, whether it's you know, where we're born, our backgrounds, how much money we earn, whether we have a job, you know, and so on and so forth, right? And these differences are, cannot be overcome simply by an abstract rights-based assertion of uh, uh, equality, or if it can, it's only at the most minimal level. Like, it would be something like, by virtue of being alive, we are all alive, you know, like it would be tautological, you know what I mean? Like, by virtue of being a human being that is has not been officially declared dead, we are somehow all equal, you know, and we all have existence privilege to use the parlance of our, of our regime. Um, but do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't it doesn't actually explain or help anything. Like it doesn't, you know, tell yeah. us how how we should live or what we should do or how we should value different behaviours and you know. And the Stoic account and Rousseau's account are grounded on a notion of nature. But I think one of the things that has happened is that, you know, the original Chrysippus era Stoic account of nature as a kind of benevolent fate, benign fate, eternal reason, you know, that then in the Middle Ages becomes divine providence. Mm. And it's more or less the same ethical theory and the same political implications, but with a different metaphysics. And the tendency with Stoicism and its more modern incarnations is to just kind of swap the metaphysics for something else to say that all human beings derive in some way from the same natural source, give that natural source different names depending on what's current, and then make the same moves from there. And I think with liberalism, what happened was capital R reason becomes the substitute for divine providence, which in turn is the substitute for benign fate. And so it's really the same thing, but with a different kind of single source. And all of those accounts are different from, say, Plato's account of the Demiurge in the Timaeus, where the Demiurge is, is not uh, eternal reason completely unchained, but is constrained in some way by the receptacle in which the universe is made, a receptacle which is not fully amenable to the intelligibles and to the forms, and therefore whatever's made in the receptacle will not be quite right, will be in some way alienated from what it's meant to be. And of course, then the, the Gnostic position of the, universe, you know, the physical universe is evil and matter is intrinsically wicked would be uh, a corruption of that view. Mm -hmm. Or yeah. an extension. I don't know. I mean, it depends Plotinus on Plotinus how... called it a corruption. Plotinus was very yeah. opposed to it. I see a lot of, of similarity in what, and I think your position with Plotinus. Because <laughs> Plotinus argues that every, everybody has, every soul has a foot in the realm of the intelligibles. And if every soul has a foot in the realm of the intelligibles, then theoretically, it should be possible for every soul to participate in some way in intelligibles. Yeah. Uh, and then Yamblichus goes the other way and goes, no, it's that nobody has <laughs> a foot in the intelligibles. I, well, I, yeah, I, I actually agree with that, that uh, dichotomy. I, I, either everybody does or nobody does. I think that's, that's <laughs> the correct way of putting it, actually. 
And and it's very interesting, you know, like even historically when, when I know I've mentioned this before, but like when Dante has to deal with the virtuous pagans, like he can't put them in hell, you know, because it's not their fault that they were born before Christ and therefore can't be baptized. So they're in limbo, like the philosophers and the unbaptized babies hanging out together. A very, very beautiful, sweet image of like Socrates cradling an unbaptized baby. Let's say how, how lovely. But, but I, I think. I mean, Ranciere actually makes this point where he says, like, equality is not an outcome, it's an axiom, right? Like, so that the equality of intelligence, as he puts it, sounds like a kind of updating of a Plotinus way, just put in a slightly more modern form, right? So it's, um, yeah, like the participation in let's say the soul's access to something. And this this goes back to the problem of the individual and also to Marilyn Monroe, actually, because this constitutive dissociation, this Gnostic separation of of the 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 real human from the artificial, the you know the Gnostic Monroe versus the human Norma Jean, if you like, or the the you know the non celebrity Norma Jean. And what is brilliant in this film, brilliantly depicted, is the blackouts. Right, it's which is absolutely constitutive of our own experience of our own life. Like even. At the level of going to sleep, right? You know, we are not. We, you know, the sleep of reason breeds demons. Is one of the most interesting uh, <laughs> phrases from Goya. But it's you can read it both ways or at the same time. But you know, when we are, we are, and Bataille always, of course, picks up on these moments of 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 the inexplicable, the irrational, the the outburst of laughter, the hiccup, the crying. You know, we we are. Um, we are not always on. We are not always conscious, rational beings, even in our own experience of ourselves, right? So we're also comprised by the, by the pouts that characterize our conscious and rational life. You know, and then Freud will obviously ex- extend this in the unconscious. But I think even before you get to that, get to that idea, it's like, you know, when Nietzsche says we know, we knowers are unknowable to ourselves when he's joking about the Enlightenment, you know, like how can Kant talk about knowledge? We don't even know who we are. Um, it's sort of, uh, I, I don't know how to, how to put it, like the, the folly of reason, the folly of being committed to reason above all else. Like reason untethered is comped, is, you know, it's the mapping of the universe. It's like saying we can know and understand everything. But that form of quantitative reason or, or instrumental rationality, as a Frankfurt school would, would put it, you know, is death, is destruction. You know, it is the elimination of all qualitative feelings so that there is no such thing as the soul anymore, whether we think about the soul as divided into a material and spiritual portion. And the blackout features also in John Locke when he talks about the invention, you know, when he starts to use the word consciousness as opposed to soul, he, he uses a legal metaphor, which is of the drunken man who can't remember the crime he's committed, but nevertheless must stand uh, and be punished for the crime that he has committed, even though he can't remember it. And he wants to say, I'm not the same person or something like this. You know, I'm a split subject. I was unconscious. And who hasn't been in that state? I certainly have. Um but it, so what he has to do is establish something like a legal fiction, which then by analogy, he uses philosophically to say, oh, we're talking about consciousness, you know, but what is the unity of consciousness over time? It doesn't really exist. It's a, it's a, it's a legal fiction. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
always been kind of attracted to Galen Strassen's point about selves. And about free will, for that matter. Boys liked him. Oh, that that uh, basic remi- argument. Remind of, me, remind me what Strawson says. I haven't read Strawson for whatever. Yeah, he says years. that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he he says that for you to have free will, you would have to have chosen how you would make decisions. You would have right, to be right, quasi right, suey, right. chosen how to decide. And a lot of people look at that and go, "Well, that isn't what people mean by by freedom or by agency." I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is Locke. I, the part of Locke I forgot to mention was the fact that the reason why they can get the drunken guy is by saying, but you were the kind of person who decided to get drunk, therefore you're responsible for everything that the drunk person who doesn't remember what they did, did, right? So you did have agency. <laughs> um, you know, but your free will was put in the service of your own oblivion, right? Another way of putting it. So you are you are responsible for that decision. And Spinoza, I think, makes a similar point. Like for Spinoza, that everything is determined. You know, Spinoza is a, is a materialist, a determinist. Everything follows from from substance. But there is a relative freedom. There's freedom within determinism, which is precisely your ability to map your relations. So, you know, hence the idea of knowing the mind of God. So the idea that the more you understand causation, the more you understand nature, the more you understand God, because God is nature, right? So the, so the botanist is like a great cartographer of the Godhead. See, that's the Stoic argument. Yeah, it's very Stoic. Yeah, yeah I... The old Chrysippus argument for compatibilism is it's a it's an argument that we now know to be terrible, but would be <laughs> very interesting if you were an ancient Greek, which is this idea that you know, eternal reason or fate pushes the cylinder, but then after the cylinder's been pushed, it accedes to moving and thereafter moves itself. Yeah, that's nice. Why not? It, nice metaphor, but of course... It's not true. That's not how <laughs> movement works. <laughs> it doesn't matter. But it's quite poetic. <laughs> it's not actually how it happens. New, you know, in Newtonian physics. I mean, that's just a theory. <laughs> but yeah, I think that a lot of what people say about agency is predicated on thinking about people like they're cylinders. Yeah. And they're not like cylinders, but this has been baked into the whole Enlightenment tradition through its stoic influence. Uh, yes. No, people are not like cylinders. Well, this is a great conclusion to our <laughs> to our thought this week. Axiom one, people are not like cylinders, claim the lack in scandalous philosophical development. Or maybe people are like cylinders, but they're not like Chrysippus's cylinders that accede to moving. <laughs> this reminds me of like what Bergson says about memory in the memory cone, actually. Mm. You know, that actually we, 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 all our memories exist. You know, we only just, we, we just periodically... Uh, uh, visit them, you know, in these heightened states or in these moments. Uh, but I, I mean, that's really a claim about memory, not about the entire being. But I don't know. I mean, from the standpoint of our contemporary ideology or the regime, you know, what what is the what 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 name can we give to the contemporary subject or agent? What what is the true name? <laughs> Of the of the current, the true name. 
mm. of the agent. Or, you know, of, of what we... Are we the individual? Are we the self? You know, it's... Because this stuff is important. It has all these kind of consequences, as we can see in contemporary culture. Like, you know, identity has been a disaster, you know, for everybody. I think we have we have self-experience. We have this feeling that we are a self that comes from the fact that we're in a body. And the body is not wired into everything else around it. So we feel that we have a kind of more intimate relationship with the atoms and matter that is integrated into the body than the stuff that's not. And that suggests that we are the stuff that's well integrated and not the stuff that's poorly integrated. Uh, so I think that, that the way matter is arranged leads us to think that we ourselves and I, uh, or that we are individuals. And I think to some degree that's always been true. And then the point that I think Plato makes in talking about the receptacle and the, the body is in some way misleading. It's mm -hmm. not that the matter is evil. It's not that the human body is evil or, or the way things are arranged is evil, but it's a little bit misleading because it invites us to think that we are the atoms that are tightly arranged and not the atoms that are loosely affiliated. Uh, and that's, I, I think it's, you know, Althusser makes the point about how we are always already subjects. We are always already wanting to believe we are subjects, so we readily accept the mm -hmm. ways in which we are socialized as subjects. And I think that comes from the fact of embodiment. The fact of embodiment suggests this to us, and it requires a kind of sustained effort to not think like that. Mm. And it requires a lot of energy and favorable social circumstances for a person to not think like that for any length of time. I think a lot of people have moments where they get out of that way of thinking, favorable moments. I think some people are really into hallucinogenic drugs because they, those drugs gave them those moments or are associated with those moments. But to be able to think like that regularly with any frequency life needs to be really well arranged. And I think that's the thing that the Stoics downplay, in part because the Stoics don't realize this to begin with. They don't see any issue with thinking in terms of self or individual. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what, what I think is going on. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? The, the way in which interpolation, you know, to use that term, and, and of course when we're talking about Pascal and Althusser and, and the subjectivation in that sense, um, yes, it's a question of habit, of the social, of, you know, if people, you know, obviously the very famous example of the police officer hailing, you know, hey, you, like the state interpolates you as a particular kind of subject, you know, Foucault takes this up and to great length. I, It's, how, how, to, how to put it, it's like... Um, there is no way around that in general, I agree. But what we see, I think, symptomatically is not, let's say, the acceptance on the one hand that we are our body, right? So, for you know, people forget this about Locke as well. Like when Locke says our body belongs to us, right, it it's, it's also belongs to God and we're supposed to look after it, right? Even in Locke, like Locke doesn't disavow the fact that even if we have self-possession or that we have a certain degree of let's say you know to go back to your point about sex work or whatever like yes you can sell or rent your body and yes capitalism is exploitation and yes all of those things are true 
I don't, of, of course, I don't think that sex work is, is the same as any other work. And there's a very good um, example by Rachel Moran, who's a former prostitute, who, who says, imagine sitting in a cafe and every man who walks through the door, you have to have sex with him, whether you like it or not. You know, it's not, this is not uh, a job like others, right? It, there is something we would say, at least for many people, that transgresses, crosses a line, you know, and, and chemically as well. Like people have pointed out that if you were dealing with similar substances on a regular basis in a lab, you'd be wearing a hazmat suit, you know, given the sort of dangers that reside in like random strangers, bodily fluid and diseases and so on, right? So in any case, uh we can leave that like maybe to one side, but the question of the body, what we have is a you know neo gnosticism often, where we have people saying, "I'm not my body," or "My body is a vessel for my inner feeling or my gender identity or who I really am, which is my my true self, right? Which is not a soul in the Christian sense, right? These are this is not a Christian position, straightforwardly or at all, uh, or it might be symptomatic of a post Christian feeling but but is a neo-gnosticism right it pre precisely because it does seem to imply that there is not only a split between the self and the body or the inner flame or some or some you know chink of light in the gnostic metaphor and that the body is some kind of horrible material evil vessel into which you have sunk or fallen but what we see then is the, the idea that you can solve or fix the problem of the body in order to align it with your self, with your true self, right? Like, and this would be the transhumanist and, and transgender position, uh, you know, to put it neutrally. I mean, this is just clearly what's going on. Like the idea that there is a mismatch between who you are in inverted commas and how you appear or how you are materially comprised, right? And this is very dominant narrative in the West for all kinds of feeling that so in the first place to even get back to your the idea that we are a coherent set of atoms that or you know a material uh, entity or a canatus in spinoza's terms that has an organic unity right and that we are our body to some degree and we are also part of the universe or that we are the universe it, like we can't even get back to the first bit of that yeah this is interesting i think so I think the the fact that we have bodies is what suggests the self to us. But then there is some part of people that wants to resist the idea that they are just the body. Mm. So while the body suggests the idea of the self, once the idea of the self takes hold, then there is an attempt to be a little bit solipsistic about it and to try to take the self outside of the thing which gives rise to it materially. Mm. And I think that that's the, the idealism of what you're talking about there. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. It does take on a kind of idealist life of its own, but it's rooted, I think, in the fact that we have a physical body. We, I don't think we could think in terms of self if we weren't embodied. But then once, yeah, then there's a, a turning against the thing that gave rise to the idea in the first instance. And that is contradictory it's strange isn't it and and it, yeah. i mean do you, i mean maybe i i think of it as a symptom of the inability to deal with the the horror of being alive qua some kind of individual like i actually think it's too hard without without community without religion without meaning without social role without embeddedness without relationality without family with you know without all of the things that would have 
previously generated a life, right? With the were a life, you end up with this impossibility of being anyone at all because the pressure is too great, you know, because you, you're not, you have none of those relations or those relations no longer symbolize or signify what they used to mean. But no one could be an individual either. No one really is an individual. And then you just end up with these identities competing on the market and trying to eliminate other ones. But as you said, very well in the first half, the first part of this um, episode, like, you know, you, the, the, the further, the more you become a, a, an appearance or, an, you know, the less you are the, the person you were before you commenced upon this journey of, uh, of, you know, being yourself, quote unquote. Um, you know, and we see this all the time on, on, online. Uh, so I, it's, it's very strange. Like, do you, I mean, do you see this stuff as a symptom? Like, is there is there a sort of solution to this uh, dissociation? Think, dissociation, maybe. I, yeah, I think Yamlicus's solution was, I think Yamlicus thought it was too hard and mm. thought that therefore the solution was to construct a set of ritualistic institutions and structures which would get people where they needed to go without mm. giving them, without necessarily... Well, some people take a pejorative view about Yamblichus and suggest that Yamblichus wasn't interested in giving people philosophical virtue. But uh, I think for Yamblichus, it was that it, that's not quite right. I think for Yamblichus, theurgic virtue, the knowledge of how to lead people down uh, uh, up a virtue ladder, was higher than philosophic virtue merely being able to think about and talk about what's good. Because that by itself doesn't necessarily allow you to transmit it to someone. Mm-hmm. But for Yamblichus, the transmission necessarily involved going into the body, meeting people in the body where they are, and that that was something that needed to happen even for someone who is going to go very high up the virtue ladder and acquire philosophical virtue. They're going to need to get there through theurgic experience. Mm-hmm. And so in some ways, it's... Once you say, well, it's too hard to just expect people to get there philosophically through argument or through discussion, uh, then you have to construct an entire environment in which it happens. And I suppose this is how both Plotinus and Yamlichus could say that they were Platonist, because Plato does suggest a little bit of both of these perspectives. Plato suggests that it's possible for the philosopher to really get a vision of the good, but Plato also suggests that the philosopher comes out of a city. Mm-hmm. And no, and for, also, I mean, the academy involves mathematics, gymnastics, and, you know, so the body is also trained. And I think, you know, in a historical way, we've separated out mind and body, right? Like philosophers are hardly generally, you know, the fittest specimens. You know, I know, I, I mean, some of them are. Probably some philosophers lift, but but it's interesting. Another symptom would be the kind of uh, the the emphasis on like uh, bodybuilding and gymnastics, separate perhaps. And it's interesting how that coincides though with the sto- revival of sto- stoicism, right? So we've in recent years seen this kind of masculinist, you know, uh, emphasis on the body, but it's not uh, totally separate from philosophy. You know, it's not just looking good for its own sake. I mean, if, yeah, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, I think there's... There, there's a recognition in Yamblichus that we have to deal with 
the body. Yeah. And that a lot of people are not going to be able to get anywhere. And not just a lot. Nobody's going to be able to get anywhere if we don't start with meeting them in the embodied experience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the sense in which it's not Gnostic is that you can start with the embodied experience and get up from there. If yeah. matter was yeah. really evil, then you wouldn't be able to get anywhere from the embodied experience. Matter's just alienated. It's not evil, so you can go up from there. But I think I think one of the things that goes on is that a lot of people who are taking capital R reason, you know, in in the Stoic kind of sense, is the thing from which all human beings mm-hmm. you know, stem. For those people, we're supposed to be able to just do reason as people without this kind of physical mediation. And so people mm-hmm. who have that kind of view tend to diminish any kind of physical ritual that is supposed to help people because they think, well, if you really have reason, then you should have no need for any of that. And so all of the little things that institutions do to try to give you an experience that makes you uh, amenable to thinking in particular ways, all of that is treating you like you're not really capable of thinking or being dishonest with you from the point of view of, of capital R reason stoicism. And, I think that the humility of that kind of Neoplatonism is in recognizing that not just some people, but everybody is going to need to be met in the physical before Mm -hmm. there will be any further movement. And maybe that's, yeah, then it leaves open the question of how this stoicism gets so intermeshed with masculinist um, body stuff. And I think maybe that's just an incongruity. I think a lot I, of people, a lot of conservatives think that Stoicism is their kind of thing, but conser- Stoicism mm. is really not a very conservative doctrine. No, I mean, I think there's a kind of um, mainstreaming of Stoicism, which which ba- makes it just coterminous with a a masculinist ideal of of um, oh, you know, not being emotional of not of being, being dependent on anything. Yeah, you know, of being yeah. self self, uh, you know, of being autonomous in a way of of accepting hardship and 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 so on. Yeah, yeah th- I think there's a lot of of kind of Henry David Thoreau type stuff going yeah. on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we've hit the hour mark, so I guess we'll leave it there. We'll go do the B side. Nina had some great ideas for the B-side at the top of the hour, so I think it's going to be fun. I, I liked some of what she, she had come up with. <laughs> some. <laughs> yeah. So, we'll go over there. We'll go do that. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.